Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, and welcome to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and today we're going to talk about one of the most interesting and challenging procedures in anesthesia, and that is the awake intubation. Before we get there, I'll tell you that I have been listening to podcasts, as I love to do, and regular listeners will know that I recently listened to the new Malcolm Gladwell podcast called Revisionist History that was fantastic, can't recommend it more highly. But also, I've gotten into Radio Lab, which is a podcast that has been around for a very long time, more than 10 years, but I've never listened to before, and now have been spending some time listening to. They're really interesting episodes where they take a look at something interesting. It could be something having to do with life, animals, science, music. It could be anything, but it's just kind of a really interesting take on it. They do great interviews with people and put together a kind of a neat story that's anywhere from about 30 minutes to an hour. Really interesting stuff. There was one I really recommend called 23 Weeks and Six Days that was about uh, a woman who had a went into labor preterm at about 22 weeks, made it to 23 and 6, and delivered the baby. And it's all about their experience with kind of making that decision to go ahead and resuscitate and to try to get the baby through everything the baby went through and the kind of miraculous trip through the NICU and the health system to what turned out to be a survival. And the girl is now five years old and doing really well. It's really quite interesting, really well put together, and I recommend taking a listen to think about some of those challenging ethical questions and also just some of the miracles that can happen uh, in science today. All right. Remember, you can check out ACRAC on the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. There you can download all the episodes, including the first five, which for some reason still don't seem to be showing up on the podcast page on iTunes, but you can get them at acrorect.com. You can also read other people's comments, post your own comments, sign up for our mailing list. Again, that's at acrorect.com in the upper right-hand corner. You can sign up for the mailing list so you'll get notifications when new episodes are out and other interesting stuff that I may send around at some point. And of course, you can always email me at acrorect at acrorect.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C at ACCRAC.com. ACRAC at ACRAC.com. I love to hear from listeners about what you think of the podcast, what else you might like to see in terms of episodes, and of course, if you have any thoughts on interesting things, interesting articles, interesting podcasts, anything else you think might be interesting for me or for all of the listeners to know about, either leave a comment or let me know, and I will mention it on the show. All right, let's move on and talk about awake intubation. I think this is one of the really, truly challenging and interesting procedures that we do in anesthesia because you're dealing with a patient who is awake, who for the most part, you're doing this procedure because they have either known or a potentially really difficult airway. You're trying to prevent ending up in the cannot intubate, cannot ventilate situation. And so you're putting in a breathing tube while the patient is still awake. 
challenging because it can be uncomfortable for patients, challenging because it can be hard to maneuver the fiberscope in such a way as to actually find your way into the airway, and challenging because there's a lot of different ways to go about it, and especially for residents and young CRNAs who are starting out and may not know exactly which of these many options is best, uh, it can be it can be really tough. So hopefully today I'll give you certainly not the definitive way that is the only way to do it, but what I think is a good way and some of the evidence behind it. There is a great review article from 2014 by uh, Collins and Blank, and it's called Fiber Optic Intubation, an Overview and Update. It was published in Respiratory Care, and it really does a good job of job of going, of going, of going, going through uh, not just awake intubation, but kind of the use of the fiber optic bronchoscope for intubation and both asleep and awake, and uh, I recommend taking a look through that. A lot of what I'm going to go over uh, is based on that article as well as a few others that uh, I'll note in the slides, which I'll post along with this. So what are the indications for an awake intubation? Well, I talked a little bit about this, but basically anytime you need to intubate someone where the ability to ventilate via mask or supraglottic airway is either unlikely or unsure or poses an aspiration risk. Also, anyone who has a history of a need for awake intubation, unless whatever led them to need that awake intubation is no longer there. Maybe they had a mass that's now been removed. And then, of course, any anatomic features that are worrisome. And these would include things like extremely limited mouth opening, reduced neck mobility, cervical spine instability, anatomic malformations of the mandible or larynx, congenital deformities such as Pierre-Robin, head and neck cancers, trauma to the face and airway, anything that makes you think it would be a a serious challenge, not only to intubate, but to successfully ventilate the person as well. So how common are difficult airways? In a review of 50,000 records, they found that it was impossible to mask ventilate in only 0.15% of these. Now, they excluded planned fiber optic, planned either awake or asleep fiber optic. So you've already excluded a large number of people who were thought to have been such difficult, potentially such difficult airways that they were planned to be fiber optic. So these were only patients who went forward with plans for a regular induction and intubation and were found to be impossible to mask. So it's actually probably if you took all comers, it's significantly higher than this. But of people who were not planned fibers, only 0.15% were found to be impossible to mask. And of those, only a quarter were actually difficult to intubate. So it's a very small percentage, but it's a real thing. And despite it being a small percentage, you certainly don't want to be the one caught unable to intubate or ventilate a patient. We often shy away from doing awake intubations. And I hear from residents a lot that they don't get experience with this. And I think that's because it's fairly time consuming. It's certainly very time consuming if you aren't used to doing it. And even if you are good at it, it's still much more time-consuming than going ahead and doing a regular induction and intubation. However, if you think about the difference between doing it awake and securing the airway versus being unable to intubate or ventilate uh, and having someone already asleep and paralyzed, you'd obviously go with spend the more time and do it awake. All right, so let's talk about different techniques. Let's start with the nasal approach. You would do... You would prefer to do a nasal approach to awake intubation when someone has a particularly large tongue because it can make the oral route more difficult. If someone has extremely limited mouth opening, it can make the oral route more difficult. Uh, An extremely receding jaw or tracheal deviation 
and in cases where the surgeons will be operating in the mouth and they need an unobstructed surgical field. In other words, dental surgery is uh, one example. This approach is also anatomically favorable because the laryngeal opening is more easily seen with the fiberscope as it courses past the nasal pharynx with less obstruction by the tongue. So when you go in the nose and come out into the oropharynx, you are directed more directly at the cords than you are if you go in the mouth. There's more manipulation that needs to take place if you go the oral route. So the nasal route is in many ways preferable. Now, it's it has some major limitations. For example, you may cause nosebleeds with a nasal approach, and that can be not only make it more difficult or impossible to intubate, but obviously can be a problem in terms of blood loss if it's severe enough and then poses the risk of aspiration and laryngospasm. Also, the nasal route can be very uncomfortable, and so if a patient is going to have to have the tube in after surgery and they're in the ICU for days and days with a nasal tube in, it can be both uncomfortable and pose a risk of necrosis to the nasal mucosa. It also mandates usually that you use a little bit of a smaller tube, and so higher resistance can be an issue, especially over a more extended period of time the nasal route, there's several things you want to do. Now, many of these things are common to both the nasal and oral route. And so what we'll do is talk about all the things you would do if you're doing an awake nasal intubation, and then I will point out the differences if you're going to do an oral awake intubation. So for nasal and oral, well, you, would get, you want to start out with an anti-sialagogue. You don't want to have to deal with a lot of secretions getting in your way. You want that mouth to be as dry as possible. And so you can start with giving some glycopyrrolate. It's going to be about 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams, and you can go ahead and give it IV and try to do it about 15, 20, even 30 minutes before you're going to do your awake intubation. So if you're planning this, give it to the patient in pre-op before you ever go back to the operating room so that it has a chance to take its effect before you get back there. Now, for the nose, you're going to want to give something to vasoconstrict the nasal mucosa and to numb it up. So Afrin spray is, in my opinion, the go-to here. That's oxymetazolone. You can use a phenylephrine solution that you mix up yourself, but that can have a reasonable amount of absorption and can cause some serious uh, hypertension if uh, it get, does get seriously absorbed, and that can be a problem, especially if a patient has any kind of coronary artery disease or heart failure. So if you have it, go with the Afrin spray, and then you can use lidocaine for the numbing aspect. And what you'll do is inject the lidocaine into the nair. Usually you can ask the patient if they have one or the other nostril that they feel like is more open or tends to be less clogged than the other, and start with that one. So you get that nair all numbed up. At that point, or you can do this before you numb up the nair, you want to have the patient breathe in some inhaled nebulized lidocaine. Ideally, this would be 4% lidocaine, and you're going to put it in a nebulizer, just as you would for any kind of nebulizer treatment. And the key here also is that you want to have this oxygen flow going at 5 liters per minute. If you turn it all the way up to 15 liters per minute, what's going to happen is that you're going to get the nebulizer is going to create droplets so small that they're not going to land and take effect until they get down into the lower airways. And you're not trying to numb up the lungs. You're trying to numb up the mouth, throat, and cords. And so you need those droplets to land and soak in higher up. And to do that, you need five liters per minute. Too much makes too small droplets. So you need to have five liters per minute. 
The other thing you can do to make this more effective is to have the patient, at least for part of the time while they're breathing the inhaled lidocaine, stick out their tongue while they put the inhaler in their mouth. Now, this is kind of an awkward thing and difficult for patients to envision, but if you show them, it's not that hard. They're going to actually stick their tongue out of their mouth and hold the mouthpiece of the nebulizer between their tongue and their top lip, and then breathe in. And what that does is it gets the tongue out of the way. You don't want all of those droplets landing on the tongue. You want them to bypass the tongue and get down into the area of the pharynx and down around the cords. But to do that, you need to get that tongue out of the way. Sometimes I'll even hold the patient's tongue for them out of their mouth with a 4x4 for a few minutes while they breathe in out of the nebulizer. So you can start this nebulizer treatment in pre-op and have them breathe it for a good 10 or 15 minutes. At that point, once you get into the operating room, if you haven't already, you can numb up the Nair with numb up and spray with the Afrin solution. And then you, what you want to do is take some additional high concentration lidocaine. And really, 1% lidocaine is just not enough for this. You, even 2% is pushing it. What you really want is 4%. And put it into either a little portable atomizer or there are little tools that have a flexible point that you can kind of put a little bit of solution in the container and then adjust the point where it sprays out of up or down and it comes out as kind of a fine mist spray. And direct that down to the back of the throat and then down towards the cords and spray some more. And then you can kind of poke in the back of the throat and see if you're getting a response. And if you are, spray some more. And if you're not, then angle further down. Then what you want to do is take some of that really thick, greasy lidocaine ointment and put it on some 4x4s that are wrapped around a tongue depressor and kind of paint the back of the pharynx with that. Just reach back there. And at this point, the back, the back of the tongue, the back of the throat should be pretty numb. So you should be able to get back there without them gagging. If they do gag, just paint some on and pull out. And then what you can do is actually have them bite on the tongue depressor while the four by four with the lidocaine ointment is in the back of their throat and have them just hold it there for a couple of minutes. And it'll kind of drip down and it should fall right around the cords, which is where you want it to go. The other thing you can do you certainly don't have to, and usually you can get by without it, but that can be pretty effective as a transtracheal lidocaine injection. And so again, you want to take your 4% lidocaine, put it in a syringe, and you can put a little butterfly needle on it and inject and put the butterfly needle through the cricothyroid membrane. Again, you have, this has to be patient with anatomy consistent so that you can find the cricothyroid membrane, put it through, aspirate until you get air. Now you know you're in the trachea and inject. Be ready. They're going to cough. Don't have your hand right up where the needle is, or if you do, make sure you don't pull it out and stick yourself, because they will probably cough and move, but you're going to spray that lidocaine right in there, angled up toward the cords, and that'll really get that recurrent laryngeal nerve. If you do all of that, you're going to be have a pretty well anesthetized oropharynx and cords. You probably are going to be fine. Always good to have a syringe of lidocaine that you can spray through your fiberscope as you go in case you do get into some gagging or coughing if you start to hit areas that you haven't numbed up really well. All right, now that you've done your nebulizer and your numbing and you've got a prepared patient, you are going to want to dilate the nair with increasing sizes of lubed nasopharyngeal airways, your nasal trumpets. Now, you don't have to lube them with lidocaine because, remember, you've already put lidocaine in the nair, but you just have to lube it so that you're not rubbing up against mucosa with a dry nasal trumpet. So once you've dilated up to about the size of the tube you're going to put in, then go ahead and insert the tube with gentle pressure until it passes into the oropharynx. 
So you'll get through the, ne- the nose and out into the oropharynx. Then what you're going to want to do, now a lot of people will kind of leave it there and put the scope through it. But a technique that I was taught here, uh, that I was taught as a resident that I really like, is to do this. So once you're in the oropharynx, now you don't know, you're not looking, you've just passed through the nose and you felt it kind of get past that resistance. Blow up the balloon, blow up the endotracheal tube balloon, and then pull back until you feel resistance, which means what you're doing now is you're pulling back until that balloon is sitting right at the entrance to the nasopharynx. And that, if you think about it, is kind of perfect position. When that balloon is up against the nasopharynx, that means the tip of your tube is pointed right out at the cords. And so if you do that, and then you put your fiber through the tube, and you come out the end of the tube, you often will be looking right at the cords. Now, sometimes you need to do some manipulation. You may not be right directly at midline, so you can move left and right. But you often are going to be setting yourself up for success if you do it this way. Once you see the cords, you'll advance your fiber optic bronchoscope through the cords, and then, and don't forget, deflate the cuff, and then advance your tube over your scope and into the trachea. To maximize your chances of success, you don't want to use a big tube, not only because you're going through the nose, but even for the oral route, you really want to use a tube that is smaller rather than larger, a 6.5 tube, maybe even a 6.0 tube, certainly not bigger than a 7, because the more difference there is between the width of your fiber and the width of your tube, the more chance you're going to have of getting hung up at the cords. Your fiber passes, but your tube won't. And if you have a smaller tube, it's much more likely to pass and and less likely to cause trauma to the cords and arytenoids. If you can't visualize the cords, you've tried, you've moved around a little, and you you just don't see them, you can have someone do a jaw thrust. That can really make a huge difference. And especially for the oral root, but it's worth trying even in the nasal root, have someone pull the tongue out. Have somebody take a four-by-four and hold the patient's tongue. Of course, you have an awake patient. You can ask them to stick their tongue out. But if they're having a hard time with that, have somebody uh, pull the tongue out of the mouth. Okay, the jaw thrust, again, it's hard to ask someone to do a jaw thrust. So you can just have someone gently, remember they're awake, have someone gently kind of pull their their chin forward to get uh, give you a little bit better view. And again, if, your scope, if you get your scope into the trachea, but your tube won't pass, then what you want to do is pull back your tube a little bit, rotate it about 90 degrees, and then try again. If that doesn't work, rotate another 90 degrees, try again. If it's still not working, you can actually just kind of try to corkscrew it in, just twist it around to try to get it in. There are other um, types of tubes that can make this easier. So there's a tube called a Parker Flex Tip Tube that actually has a curved and tapered distal tip and it helps it slide past the cords better. But most of the time, especially if you haven't chosen a big, big tube, this can be very difficult if you've chosen an 802, but if you've picked a 6.5 tube, most of the time you're going to be able to get it in either right away or with a little bit of rotation to help get it in. All right, how about for the oral route? So again, the oral route is harder because you're having to deal more with the tongue and your path is not as straight, it's not as much of a straight shot. You have to kind of come more anterior from where you enter in order to get to the cords. You obviously don't need to do any prep of the nose if you're doing an oral route, but otherwise all those steps for nebulizing and using lidocaine in the mouth and throat, doing a transtracheal block if you want to do that, all of those are going to be the same. Now, in terms of entering the mouth, the way that I do it is just to enter midline with the tongue out of the mouth, so have the patient stick out their tongue and have someone probably help them by holding gently with a 4x4, and then walking straight back, just walking along the tongue with your fiber, staying midline, and following the tongue. If you follow the tongue back and the tongue is out of the mouth, it should lead you where you want to go. 
Some people like to use special types of oral airways that have a central channel through which you can put the fiber. One that I used as a resident is called the Ovasapien airway. That's O-V-A-S-S-A-P-I-A-N. And the idea being that that helps you kind of stay more steady and stay in midline. And if you like that and you have them, you certainly can do that. The other thing is, as you're manipulating with the oral root, you can advance your tube so that your tube is right at the opening to the mouth and use that tube to move back and forth a little bit to make sure it keeps you in midline. If you're just using your fiberscope, it's really easy for it to slide on either side of the tongue. But if you have your endotracheal tube right at the mouth opening, that can help keep you directly midline. With the oral root, getting that jaw thrust, having someone help the patient really stick their lower jaw out, and having somebody help them hold their tongue out, those things are really key with the oral root and can make a huge difference with locating the cords. And again, the key here is really staying midline and not letting that tongue push you off. So the way I've described it, I think, is a perfectly good way to do it. I don't think you need to add anything to it. It will work well and can be perfectly comfortable for patients. I want to talk about two different things here. One is nerve blocks. So there are some nerve blocks you can do. Again, I don't think they're necessary, but you should know about them if for no other reason than they can easily be on your boards, but also because you might want to try these. And then the other thing we'll talk about, of course, is sedation. But first, let's talk about nerve blocks. So The glossopharyngeal nerve supplies sensory innervation to the posterior third of the tongue, the vallecula, the anterior epiglottis, the walls of the pharynx, and the tonsils. So obviously an important nerve here. You can block this by soaking some pledgets in lidocaine and holding them against the tonsillar pillars, or you can inject at the mandible and mastoid processes. So you could put a couple of cc's in a syringe and inject one or two cc's at each of the processes and numb the glossopharyngeal nerve that way. Next, the superior laryngeal nerve, which provides sensory innervation to the base of the tongue and the posterior surface of the epiglottis down to the arytenoids. This you can block by injecting local anesthetic at the cornu of the hyoid bone. So again, on either side, you would locate the hyoid bone, put your needle through to to hit right at the cornu, and inject. For all of these blocks, you're going to use 1% lidocaine. That's all you need. 1% lidocaine for these blocks can last quite a while. It can last up to 75 minutes. If you add epi, 1 to 200,000, that's 5 mics per mil, you can actually get blocks that last up to 400 minutes, so quite a long time. Finally, the vagus nerve branches, and the most important being the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which supplies uh, sensory innervation to the underside of the epiglottis and the trachea. And this If you want to do a block, which I've already talked about, and this is the one block I do think is probably worthwhile, at least to consider, and that's the transtracheal block to numb those up. All right, let's talk about sedation while you're doing an awake intubation. Now, first of all, there's two main factors that are going to go into what and how much sedation you use. First is how scary that airway looks, and the second is the patient and how well they're going to tolerate this. So it is okay not to use any sedation. There's a great YouTube video of an anesthesiologist at Harvard who intubates himself awake on stage. He has some nebulized lidocaine. He has a resident come up and do a transtracheal lidocaine block, and that's it. He intubates himself. No sedation at all. So if someone has a really scary-looking airway, it is okay 
tell them about it, tell them why you're not going to use sedation, they'll understand. Most people, if you tell them that this is to save, to protect them for their safety, it's so that they don't die, they're going to be pretty open to you doing it the way you tell them you need to do it. And if that's no sedation, then that's no sedation. If you use enough lidocaine, if you do the topicalization correctly, they shouldn't be too uncomfortable. But some patients won't tolerate it. And some patients, maybe you feel like the airway looks like it. You do feel like you want to do an awake intubation, but it doesn't look that scary, so you feel like you can give them some sedation. So what are your options if you do decide to use sedation? So there's the kind of old standby, Versed and fentanyl. Again, this is an old standby and not something that I would recommend. Versed and fentanyl together have a high rate of causing apnea. You wouldn't be doing this awake intubation if you thought you could make a patient apneic because then you would just induce them and intubate them. So I would probably stay away from Versed and fentanyl. You could use Versed alone, and that is a pretty common choice, but still at higher doses can cause some apnea, and often you end up using a lot more than you would just for anxiolysis for someone who's a little nervous in pre-op because they're going to be a lot more nervous when you're trying to put a tube in them. So not my choice, but certainly that is something that's used. Remifentanil is a great option for this. You can use just small boluses. You can use just a drip or you can use bolus and a drip. I would recommend trying the bolus and or bolus and drip method. If you're going to do boluses, somewhere between 0.5 to 1 mic per kilo boluses, I would probably start somewhere in the 20 to 30 microgram range and then see how they respond, make sure they keep breathing, and go ahead and either give them periodic boluses every couple of minutes, or you can start a drip somewhere around 0.05 to 0.07, maybe all the way up to 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. Often people will stop breathing at times, but they'll breathe if you tell them tell them to. Them to, them to. So it doesn't actually make them unconscious. It just increases their respiratory drive enough that sometimes they have to be told to breathe. Ketamine, another good option, although you really want to make sure you use an anti-sialagogue because ketamine can cause increased secretions. You can give periodic boluses. So again, something like 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. Start with maybe... 20 to 30 milligram bolus, see how the patient reacts, give that every five to 10 minutes. And you can run a drip at something like 10 mics per kilo per minute if you also want to supplement with a drip. Presidex, a newer and really good medication for this. Usually what you're going to want to do is both a load and an infusion. The load is going to be something like 0.4 to 1 mic per kilo. So Again, you're talking about in a 100-kilo person, something like 40 to 60 mics. You're going to do that not all at once because it can cause pretty profound bradycardia if you bolus at that uh, amount all at once, but you can give it over about 10 minutes, and then you can run a drip at somewhere between 0.5 to 1 mics per kilo per hour. Again, that's one of the few drugs that is run at mics per kilo per hour, not mics per kilo per minute. And of course, you can do this under general anesthesia, though obviously that kind of makes it not an awake intubation, but the point being with spontaneous ventilation. So you can use inhaled anesthetic or propofol and titrate it so that the patient is asleep but still breathing. Obviously, the problem with this is that it's easy to go a little too far and have them stop breathing, and if you can't ventilate them, then that's not a good thing. When these two have been compared, they're pretty similar, except that there's more hypoxia and obstruction with propofol than there is with inhaled anesthetics. 
there have been some studies that have compared some of these to each other. So remifentanil versus propofol found that remifentanil produced better conditions. It was better tolerated, and patients breathed when they were told to, as I mentioned before. When Presidex was compared to propofol, it turned out Presidex was superior in terms of causing less hemodynamic instability and also causing less airway obstruction. And then Presidex versus remifentanil, Presidex was found to be better in terms of not causing as many desaturations. There's a good article that uh, compares these. It's by Johnston and Ray called Conscious Sedation for Awake Fiber Optic Intubation, a review of the literature published in 2013 in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesiology. All right, finally, there are some other techniques other than fiber optic bronchoscopy to do awake intubations. You can do a fiber optic intubation through an LMA. Now, it might seem crazy to put an LMA in someone who's awake, but remember, if you've really topicalized their airway, then they're not going to feel it anyway. And you can do this. You can put an LMA in and get it well seated, and then you can put your fiber through the LMA. Now, you might say if you can ventilate someone with an LMA, if you can get an LMA really well seated, then maybe you don't need to do the intubation awake. But be that as it may, you may not know if they're awake, how well you'd be able to ventilate when they're asleep. So you put in the LMA, you put your fiber through your tube, and you put your uh, tube and your fiber through the LMA port and out the front. Now, some people like to cut off the little prong at the end of the LMA at the uh, opening at the distal end. Uh, That's there to prevent things from getting uh, stuck up into the LMA. But that prong, you can pretty easily push out of the way with your fiber and, and your tube. And so I don't think you need to cut it off if you're using the classic LMA. You put your your tube and your fiber through, and often you'll come out looking right at the cords if your LMA is well-seated. If not, you can obviously adjust. You can do an awake glide scope intubation. That's another technique. So you do the same topicalization. You use your whatever sedation you're going to use. And I do want to, going back to the sedation, let me just emphasize again that you can always give more, but you can't give less. If you're doing an awake intubation, you're doing it because you're worried about putting this patient to sleep before you have a secured airway, don't overdo the sedation. You can really do a lot with talking and explaining, making the patient feel comfortable with you and with the situation. Some patients, yes, they're so anxious, it's not going to help. But a lot of patients, if you explain what's going on and why you're doing it, they will handle it with very little sedation. All right, so in a weight glide scope, so same thing. You are going to do your topicalization, but then you'll just put in the glide scope. Tell the patient to open their mouth. And again, if you've done good topicalization, they won't gag. You put the glide scope in and see what kind of view you can get. You can do an awake DL also with a regular Mac or Miller blade. Same thing, topicalization, open the mouth, tell them to open their mouth, put your blade in. They shouldn't gag if you've topicalized well. Sometimes it's nice to combine these things. So if you use, for example, a glide scope and a fiber optic bronchoscope, you can get kind of the overall large view with your glide scope and then the, more, the smaller, more focused view with your fiber optic bronchoscope. And so what your glide scope can help you do is make sure, for example, that your midline, this is presuming that you don't just have a grade one view with your glide scope, obviously, in which case you don't need the fiber, you can just put the tube in. But if you put in your glide scope and you don't have a grade one view, but you do have a, a, some anatomy that you can see and you can figure out where is midline here, then you should be able to adjust your tube and your fiber optic bronchoscope back and forth to get where you need to go. For example, let's say you can see epiglottis, you can therefore 
look on your GlideScope screen, adjust your tube so it's right at the epiglottis or just snaking under it, and then use your fiber to find the cords. And of course, you can do the same thing with a regular DL. You won't have it on the screen, but you'll be able to move the tongue out of the way and help your tube and fiber optic bronchoscope have a better shot at getting where they need to go. All right, that's it on awake intubation. I hope this was helpful. As I said, there are many different techniques, and I'd love to hear from people who have done this differently or who disagree with my technique or who just think, hey, that sounds good, but I've got another one that I like too. Post comments on the website so that everyone can learn from what you have to say. Again, it's ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C.com. Post your comments there. And remember, you can also sign up for the mailing list by going to the top right-hand corner of the website. You can download all the other episodes, and you can always email me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. That's it for now. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 